Well, I want to invite you to join me in uh, Mark chapter 1 as we continue our journey through Mark's gospel. We'll pick up this morning where we left off last week with verse 40 and read through to the end of the chapter. The context of this encounter comes immediately on the heels of what is described in verse 39. I should say verses 38 and 39. And he said to them, let us go out, right? Let us go on to the next towns. So from Capernaum to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, um, uh, Josephus speaks of about 250 towns and villages in first century Galilee, each kind of containing its own unique town center. And so he went out throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And verse 40, a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity or compassion, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, saying to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But when he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, would you pray with me? Um, uh, Father, again, we echo the words of our brother in Christ who has long since gone to be with you in Augustine. Uh, we ask for um, receptive hearts, um, clear minds, um, and we beg uh, that you would speak to us. Uh, we come not seeking some special revelation, but we come to your word where you have revealed yourself. And simply peering into these majestic words, the accounting of your incarnation, life and ministry on earth, um, through these words, you have spoken, and through these words, so you continue to speak. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Father, may that sword pierce through the joints and the marrow and the hard places of our stony hearts. May you convict us, mold us. May you comfort us and strengthen us. And may you, as you promised to do, continue to draw the hearts of sinful men and women to you. Uh, because you are a good, compassionate, and merciful God. For these things, we thank you in advance. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. 
One of the great gifts God has given to us through the scriptures are metaphors. Real people lived real lives directed by God to paint massive human stories. Uh, We know this because of something that Paul said uniquely about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and his wife. Paul makes specific mention saying, this was an allegory for you. And an allegory is, you know, basically a, it's a story that means something more than the story itself. And so too we have these great metaphors, real stories, real lives, real people, real encounters, real conversations, real healings. And yet, as so often the scriptures do, they point to something more than a mere historical account. God then uses all of this in his providence to tell the gospel story. The story we just read of the leper who was healed is one of these great stories that is also a grand gospel metaphor. And so this is the title that I very cleverly gave to the sermon today. Ooh, ah, please, please. In the New Testament era, there was no disease regarded with more terror and pity than the disease of leprosy. This case um, seems exceptionally advanced as Dr. Luke, in his parallel account of this specific miracle, describes this man not as merely one who has leprosy, but one who is full of leprosy. The life sentence for the person who contracts leprosy is a miserable and hard existence. Quote, no other disease reduces a human being for so many years to so hideous a wreck. There are three kinds of leprosy. The one seemingly in question here is called nodular or tubercular leprosy. The earliest symptoms are simply an, an unexplainable lethargy and pain deep in the joints. Then pink splotches begin to appear, and the previous symptoms start to have their explanation. Oh, that's why I've been so tired. Oh, that's why I've been so achy. It's leprosy. And as the splotches begin to appear on the skin, the reality of the diagnosis would no doubt hit the one who has been infected. Spots appear, um, first usually on the back in symmetrical patches, which is most unnatural, before eventually... um, beginning to form in all of the the folds of your skin, most notably around the nose and the lips, eyes, forehead, and cheeks. On these patches form pink nodules, which eventually turn brown. The skin itself thickens. The nodules grow and so distort the appearance of the man that he is said to have a face like a lion by ancient writers. 
After some time, the nodules continue to enlarge. They ulcerate and burst open. From these open sores comes a foul-smelling discharge. As the disease advances, your eyebrows fall out. Uh, Your eyes sort of lock in a staring, sort of distant state. The voice becomes hoarse and strained, while breathing becomes labored because the nodules have now begun to form on your vocal cords. Hands and feet are met with the same rash, nodule, ulcer, discharge process. The only mercy is that the nerves are attacked, rendering limbs numb and unable to discern pain. But this only increases the danger posed to those who contract it. A simple scratch or a thorn goes unnoticed and untreated, leading to bacterial infection and the sickness and often amputation that would accompany it. Slowly, the sufferer becomes a mass of ulcerated growths, typically taking about nine years to bring the person into mental decay, coma, and death. But, quote, not before becoming utterly repulsive to both himself and to others. The physical state of the leper conveys the reason for fear among others in the community. A horrifying and grotesque sight that would evoke fear that, that you might share their fate if you didn't keep your distance. Not only was this leper not allowed to live in the city among others, uh, he was required any time he was within 150 feet of other human beings um, to cry out, unclean, unclean, as he approached any populated area. As he covered his mouth with one hand and he wore his lo- hair long over his face, dressed in tattered and ripped clothing in order to announce his arrival long before he would be among people. Barclay puts it this way, he was banished from the fellowship of men. The leper's condition and status in the community is what makes this first point so striking. If you're taking notes, we'll observe, number one, that Jesus received this man. It just says, a leper came to him. A leper came to him, kneeling. Uh, the root behind the word kneeling is actually to, to fall down prostrate. So we should uh, imagine not a simple bow or a curtsy, uh, but on his knees with his face to the dust. And it's an ongoing active verb form, kneeling. So he, he knelt down, And he stayed down as he spoke to Jesus. The man, in violation of the code, approached Jesus. Uh, This was completely against the law. Leviticus 13 and 14 make very clear how a leper is to interact with the community. And this was in clear violation. There was no provision for the leper to approach Jesus in this way. There was no tradition 
for whenever a healer arrives, how a leper might approach him. We already established last week that there were no recorded healings in Israel for 750 years before Jesus appeared on the scene. And suddenly, right? Multiple reliable sources say this man broke every convention, violated prescribed forms of communication, and risked scorn, punishment, and humiliation to come to Jesus, to kneel before him, to beg him for mercy. You might imagine it. You know, try to put yourself in this man's shoes. What more scorn and misery could you possibly face? Having lost his health, the company of fellow men, the prospect of wife, children, family, long life, facing the certainty of a drawn out and painful death, is there any humiliation that is beneath him? And the answer, of course, is no. It's a bit like, he might send me away, the people might shout at me and cry and recoil and look on me with disgust. They always do, they most certainly will once again. But what else do I have to lose, right? And so in that, the man expresses remarkable faith. No doubt spurred on by stories he's heard of Jesus, the man acts consistent with what he believes about Jesus' character. That he is compassionate, powerful, and able to heal him. May we see in this poor leper a picture of ourselves. Completely helpless, diseased, and doomed such that no humiliation at the feet of Jesus is beneath us. In the end, Jesus did not recoil from the man. He didn't rebuke him for violating Levitical code, um, nor do we have any idea that he was repulsed by him the way others would be. We simply observe that Jesus received him. Jesus allowed this filthy wretch to approach him, and in that, he shows us this picture, you know, of the Father's love. Only a father, um, only a father can embrace uh, a, a, a very sick child, right? Maybe a mother too, but the picture here is of the father, so, you know, we'll ignore that part for now. <laughs> I'll just speak from a dad's perspective, right? Somehow... Your sneezing, snotting, oozing child can still come to you. Right, Dad? And so Jesus shows us a great picture. After Jesus received the man, secondly, we note that Jesus touched the man. So if you're taking notes, number two, Jesus touched the man. And in that, Jesus was uh, three things. We note that he was moved, compassionate, and intimate. I want to explore each of them briefly. Number one, we read that he was moved, moved with pity or moved with compassion. Some translations read that Jesus was indignant, which I find curious. 
the English rendering of this comes to moved with compassion, um, but um, many translators believe the correct Greek terminology used would be most rightly rendered that Jesus was indignant. But for the sake of the reader who is reading the story, the concept that he was moved with pity more rightly conveys what we might assume if we read that he's indignant. I think the most important thing is that he did not respond casually to this. I prefer the term indignant because it's consistent with the rest of the story. Looking upon the face of a man so disfigured, cut off and desperate, the dignity of his humanity stripped from him by this disease, this unwelcome intruder in God's good creation. I can imagine Jesus being indignant with a sort of fierce anger at sin's intrusion into his world, Jesus is looking at the inevitable result of sin. Because sin dehumanizes people. Just read of David's adulterous and conspiratorial theft of Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. In David's lust... Bathsheba was not a daughter of Israel, the child of God, one entrusted to his care as king over Israel who deserved his respect and protection. No, she became in his eyes no more than an object of his burning passion. And all over the world, and all over the internet, and all over entertainment, Women are dehumanized by the disdainful disease of the lust of men's passion. Be it the adult film industry or human trafficking or many other such forms, sin dehumanizes God's creatures made in his image. And I do not think that Jesus looks dispassionately at this crime. It's not just lust, though. Uriah, too, was not a man worthy of honor in David's eyes. He became an obstacle, a problem to solve, something that needed to be manipulated out of the way in order to preserve the illusion of David's integrity. And if history has taught us anything, it's this. When sinful men are given the power to kill for convenience with impunity, they will. They will do it. It's basically the story of every Roman emperor for the first three centuries after the death of Christ. Well, and of course, before and during his birth story as well, right? Now, I imagine all of this ran through the perfect mind of Christ in an instant. And in this leper, Jesus saw a, a microcosm of the dehumanizing, humiliating effects of sin on his world, on his children. And he was indignant. His indignation, though, led him to compassion. 
He was moved, he was indignant, but he was also compassionate. For the average human, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, James chapter 1. But Jesus isn't the average man. Unlike you and I, Jesus' anger does produce righteousness. And what is produced by his indignation is compassion. It is the same compassion that held him to the cross, the same compassion that allowed him to be scorned, beaten, humiliated. He was moved with compassion. May we be careful that our indignation over sin not move us to condemnation. But may we beg the Lord to help us to walk in his footsteps such that we are moved, indignant even, over sin, but moved to compassion. Those who misunderstood the character of the Father recoiled away from this man, disdained him, would have shouted violent commands at him to get away. But Jesus, understanding the heart and the character of God, being God himself, is not moved in such a way. He is moved as intensely, but instead toward compassion. Well, then thirdly, we note that he's intimate. So he is moved, he's compassionate, but that compassion leads also to a particular intimacy. Because of his compassion, Jesus interacted with holy intimacy. Kind of like the way that Paul compels us to greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't kiss me. But Paul says that we should. But don't. Uh, With a loving hand, Jesus reached out and touched the man. It shouldn't be too quickly overlooked. This man, who has not been touched for who knows how long, felt the kind hand of Jesus, you might imagine, on his head or on his shoulder. This man who had been robbed of sensation was suddenly pulsating with feeling as the nerves that had been destroyed were immediately restored. Medical journals know what this Bible story tells us. Human contact is a need for us. We unknowingly, subconsciously crave human contact. It's one of the reasons why when COVID shut down our world and isolated us from one another, depression, suicide, drug and alcohol abuse, all went through the roof. Among the many reasons to explain that, psychologists say, is simply the lack of human touch. From the moment of birth onward, skin-to-skin contact works like a miracle drug to reduce fear, improve cognitive development in children, and even to regulate anxiety, depression, and stress. Can you imagine the emotional and physical sensation 
this man felt as Jesus touched him. His sickness immediately reversed. His humanity that had been stripped from him (laughs) restored. Is it any wonder that he had a hard time, as we read, obeying Jesus' instruction to keep quiet about it? No. It's no shock, really. Verse 45, he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news. (laughs) As Grant Osborne writes, when Christ has changed your life, you must go public with the incredible joy that you feel. So Jesus received the man. Jesus touched the man. And then number three, we should note, Jesus instructed the man. Jesus instructed the man. Again, verse 43, Jesus sternly charged him, sent him away at once. See to it, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, there are a number of reasons for the instruction Jesus gave, but first, we have to appreciate Mark's description Jesus warned him sternly, sternly. It's another one of these unique Greek words. Like the the word interpreted as moved with compassion or indignant is unusual and not used often in the text of any of the gospel writers, so too this word... I can't hardly say it, is not used very often. There is something unique about this communication. It's only used a handful of times by the gospel writers when they seek to convey a deep and intense emotion. One of the few other times it's used is when Jesus is being described at the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus being so deeply moved that others around him noticed the intensity Same root word. Jesus sternly warned him. The direct translation of this word would be that he snorted at him. Which sounds weird, but you get the idea. So worked up that, you know what I mean? Like, moms and dads, we know that feeling, don't we? Right? Did you eat my cookies? You rotten little... (laughs) These flashbacks up here that sometimes I entertain and other times I ignore. I have this flashback of eating my dad's, like, you know, these are like his lunch cookies, you know? It's like we buy a box, they're in the pantry, and these are for dad's lunch every day. Children aren't allowed to touch them. And I (laughs) have this... This distinct memory of sitting at the kitchen table, peering out the window (laughs) as I'm eating one of his cookies, just praying I don't see his truck come around the corner, you know? We'll worry about explanations later. For right now, I just want the cookies. I think one or two times my dad probably snorted at me. Jesus sternly warned him, almost kind of like, you might imagine... 
um, being so overwhelmed and so overjoyed at the, at the renewed strength and health, what seemed impossible only days ago was now an absolute reality. Almost just like his head is in the clouds, he's, he's, he's fast-forwarding his life to all the un, unfulfilled dreams that had been sacrificed at the altar of this disease were now suddenly flooding back into his mind. And it's almost like Jesus grabbed him by the collar and said, hey, come back here. Hey, hey. Right? That's sort of the intimation. Kind of like a stern fatherly demeanor. Jesus instructs the man. And it comes in two forms. There's a negative and there's a positive. In the negative, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. Which, of course, seems odd to us who are um, products of the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. This is the epitaph over the lives of those who have been remarkably rescued by the grace of God. And so for Jesus to say, don't tell anybody about this, certainly strikes us uniquely, doesn't it? It should. Black's New Testament commentary helps us here, saying, quote, the significance of what Jesus has done cannot be grasped at this stage. And this is it, right? The crowds can only marvel at what they hear without understanding. Yeah. In much the same way, Jesus would later tell Peter not to tell people that he's the Messiah. Who do you say that I am, Peter? You are the Christ. Shh, don't tell anybody. There's something of um, what is often referred to in theological writing as the messianic secret. That's a phrase that um, if you're a note taker, you would want to write down. You'll probably come across it in your studies. The messianic secret that's being invoked here. Um, uh, you know, what did Jesus say to his mom? Uh, you know, my time has not yet come. Right? There was a very deliberate and purposeful uh, manner in which Jesus acted. And then when the time did come, he was not shy about it. He rode a donkey into Jerusalem to the praises of the people. This, this was overt in its action, in its bullishness, in its challenge to every represented authority present. This is how kings were inaugurated in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. You would ride a donkey into Jerusalem to the praise and the shouts and the adulation of the people. Every challenge, every rival challenge to the throne that's recorded in the Old Testament has something of that form. So clearly when the timing was right, Jesus was ready to say, all right, now let's get on with this thing, you know? And then he spent a week in Jerusalem throwing over tables and beating people and teaching people, right? The time to be quiet had obviously ceased. But for now, for now, there was something of that, quote, the messianic secret that was being invoked. But of course, the man couldn't contain himself. His inability to obey this command is nowhere presented to us as disobedience, just as the natural, repeated reaction to the wonder of what was happening in first century Israel. I saw a video of a man who was dealing with chronic pain in his back and in his neck. 
and and uh, men men who have worked manual labor jobs, you know that uh, you know you can injure a lot of parts. But if you hurt your back, you're useless, right? Uh, and then you also know if if you've ever had like a uh, the need for a root canal, what's it called? Like an abscess tooth, that, that pain in your head, it renders you just, you can't concentrate, you can't focus. And the combination of those two is what this man had obviously been dealing with for years. Chronic back and neck pain. All other forms of relief that he had sought had failed, and so he decided to go to a chiropractor. And in the video, the doctor twisted him and pulled him and cracked him, you know, and and the man began to weep. And at first, it looks like he's weeping from the pain of the violence this crackpot just inflicted on him. <laughs> um, but they were tears of joy. They were tears of relief. Having spent so long straining under the weight of this chronic pain, for it to be instantly relieved, was so emotional, he couldn't contain himself. I imagine something like that for this poor leper, who by God's providence and for God's purposes was allowed to experience uh, the lowest of lows and the highest of highs here on earth. Well, the negative instruction is intrinsically connected to the positive. So go tell no one, but do go and present yourselves to the priests, or yourself to the priests. Again, Leviticus 13 and 14, uh, if you're interested in doing some further research on this, uh, just for your own edification as it relates to this story this week, which I certainly encourage, just go read Leviticus 13 and 14. Labor through it. it it'll be worth the time. Um, it's dry. It's prescriptive. It's very formulaic, but a worthwhile endeavor. It prescribes the diagnosis for leprosy and also the ritual requirements for the one who finds themselves relieved of it. Should a man or a woman develop a case of a leprous skin disease that does indeed clear up, he or she was to present themselves again for examination to the priests. Now in first century Jerusalem, there was actually a, a, a section built into the temple called the Chamber of the Lepers, separate from the rest of the gathering of the areas for worship. This wasn't for lepers to come and participate. This was for them to come, be diagnosed, present themselves, should they recover, be ceremonially washed, and ultimately, get this, receive a written certificate from the priests that would declare them legally, ritually clean. The key to this, to understanding this instruction, seems to be rooted in this simple claim of Jesus in Matthew 5, 17, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, in Mark's account, chapters 2 and 3 will record accusations that Jesus violated the law. Scribes, Pharisees, priests began to hurl these accusations at Jesus. And the Gospels are replete with examples where Jesus does seem to breach custom, 
He certainly breaks from tradition, and certainly the religionists of the day's interpretation of the law. But despite these accusations, Jesus never violated a single iota of the Torah, only a misunderstood application and incorrect tradition that usurped the Torah. One preacher wrongly asserted from the platform um, to the applause of the masses gathered under his teaching, uh, God broke the law for love. Um, But this is wrong on so many levels. Number one, God does not contradict himself. Number two, Jesus made this very specific overt claim that he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And accounts like this one remind us that Jesus was keenly, forcefully interested in keeping the law. He sternly warned the man and instructed him to keep the law. And here is at least one important reason why. I imagine there are dozens. It is the law of God that points to Jesus as the Messiah. It would make no sense, and it would be completely counterproductive to undermine the very thing that foreshadowed Jesus' identity and purpose for his incarnation. Now, this is a dry and very academic point. But church, if you are not equipped to combat such heresies, you are susceptible to be caught up in the emotion of the video that I watched of the preacher declaring foolishness to the praise of the people, okay? So, for that reason, we take a moment, right, to march through this dry point. Jesus never broke the law, not one bit, not one iota. He only broke from tradition that had begun to usurp the law. You teach as doctrine the traditions of men that then undermine what the law actually prescribes. This he said to the Pharisees. No, we have every reason um, to echo the words of David in the Psalms. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Yeah. Yeah, May that be so of us, friends. Otherwise, we might find ourselves caught up in the emotion of a crowd. And it was the emotion of a crowd who called for the crucifixion of Jesus. And it's certainly the emotion of a crowd today in many places gathered even on this morning. That parrot and cheer as heresy is proclaimed. Well, beyond that sort of stern talking to, um, I do find some incredibly moving application 
You might put it this way. Um, For each movement of this story, we find a gospel parallel. You know how a a play has multiple acts? Uh, For each movement of this story, we find a gospel parallel. Um, And I'll just run through them hopefully briefly because our time has almost expired. Um, The first of which is simply this, um, I am the leper. I am the leper. And Jesus received lepers. The gospel calls on us to see ourselves the way the leper saw himself, hopeless without Christ, desperate. I mean, Paul quotes the ancients in Romans chapter 3 when he just says this, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul calls on us to see ourselves lumped in this group of humanity that is not seeking for, longing for, chasing after that which is good. No, Ephesians chapter 2, we were walking to the beat of the drum of Satan until God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Let us see ourselves the way the leper saw himself, hopeless. And as we do, this would manufacture in us a particular humility the kind of which could only be the result of the Spirit of God drawing us to himself. Alistair says, you will never bow your stubborn will down before Almighty God until he shows you who you are. I am a leper, eaten up with sin, disfigured, deformed, desensitized, dehumanized by sin. Secondly, we should note that I need Jesus' touch. And Jesus touched the leper. The unique fear and contagion around leprosy made it illegal for a leper to touch others. Again, if others were downwind of him, it was illegal for him to be within 150 feet of them. And that would mean certainly others wouldn't touch him. Anything the leper touched would be considered unclean. Ancient Jews didn't know about germs and bacteria, but God did. And so God prescribed that anything that the leper touched needed to be washed or burned, both practically and ritually. One rabbi said, I wouldn't buy an egg from a market if a leper had been on the street. If leprosy was suspected and perhaps recovered from, the house of the leper would have to be so thoroughly washed and ceremonially cleansed that that most of the time they would just tear it down and rebuild somewhere else. Therefore, the last thing someone would ever do is reach out their hand knowingly, purposefully, and touch the flesh of a leper. Mark, who is so stingy with his words that the gospel account reads like the opening sequence of Top Gun, it's just action, 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 right? The movie begins, boom, they're in the middle of the the Indian Ocean on an aircraft carrier. It's like, whoa, you know? 
No, 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 we're not, we're not talking about Tom Cruise and his birth and like his journey through the pilot's academy and his dad dying in the war and blah, blah. No, boom, he's on an aircraft carrier. Boom, there's enemy planes, right? That's Mark, immediately, immediately, immediately. So stingy with his words. And yet it was important to Mark to use a few of them to describe this healing this way. He stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus' purity so outweighed the uncleanness of leprosy that he couldn't be defiled by the man. The only result of contact with the Christ is that the man is restored. Dear friend, may we marvel at this truth today. The only result of intimate contact with Jesus is that we too are restored. You can bring your faults and failure, your inadequacies and your foolishnesses with you to him. I don't like country music. Well, I like some country music, the good kind. I definitely don't like gospel music. Um, uh, Yet, by dint of my upbringing, I was exposed to it on repeated fashion. And as I studied for this sermon, the Gaither vocal band would not exit the premises of my brain. And I could hear their harmonies and their dronings, and uh, I wanted to turn on some rock and roll because it's not my jam. Um, But I'm grateful that the Spirit of God implanted these, these very good truths in my mind as a young person. Uh, Because the song um, speaks to this beautifully. Shackled by a heavy burden, beneath a load of guilt and shame, then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer. If you know the chorus, you could sing it. He touched me, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's a combination of like tears and laughter in the room. Tears who, like me, are moved by the kindness of our Savior and laughter at the lousiness of our singing ability as a group. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. And now I know he touched me and he made me whole. Yeah. I'm a leper. I need the touch of Jesus. Um, But then like the leper, Jesus returns me to his word. Like the leper, Jesus returns me to his word. You know, John 3.16 is marvelous, right? It's well known. It's the most well-known verse in all the Bible. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever believes. And then fast forward 20 verses, and the gospel writers seem to contradict themselves. Jesus himself seems to do so. He says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever does not obey does not believe, James tells us. 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Tozer says, if your Christian conversion did not reverse the direction of your life, if it did not transform it, then you are not converted at all. You are simply a victim of the accept Jesus heresy. Jesus always turns us to the word of God to live out a God-exalting life. Just as he turned the leper to the book of Leviticus for instructions what to do next, he so too turns us to the word again and again and again. Well, ultimately, the gospel metaphor extends beyond the leper's desperation, Jesus' compassionate touch, or being pointed back to the word for a life lived in obedience. Ultimately, we see is some, what something um, MacArthur calls Jesus trading places with the leper. See, once the man was healed in his joy, he goes out and he tells everyone about it. So drastic, so immediate, and so dramatic was this man's transformation that Jesus' fame skyrocketed. No longer could he walk into the town. He couldn't even go in and find this guy or guys like him in other towns. But of course, how is this man telling people what happened to him? Well, because he's going into the towns. He was finally free to walk in the towns and be among the people. The leper who was previously dwelling in remote places, now Jesus takes his place in the isolated places. Verse 45, he went out and talked freely about it and spread the news. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in what? Desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. The leper who previously lived in remote places now told his story among the people in the towns. And Jesus, who was previously in the towns, <laughs> is now driven to the remote places. You see, Jesus took the place of the leper, and the leper took the place of Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Yeah. The great exchange in great metaphorical detail on display for us <laughs> as Jesus cleanses the leper. Well, may we rejoice this day that Jesus took our place so that we can take his, that he took upon himself the crown of thorns, which we had earned, so that we might have placed on our heads the crown of life, which only he earned. Now, let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your kindness, sharing with us this wonderful story and all that there is to be gleaned from it. I ask and we pray together as a whole that you would go before us this day and remind us of your goodness and your mercy such that we are motivated as the leper was to go and to tell, such that we are compelled to obey and return to your word, and such that we would marvel at this great gift that you would take our place on the cross 
that we might take yours in glory. Thank you for this great gift. It is beyond acknowledgement. It is beyond comprehension. All we can say is thank you. In Christ's name we pray.